Before we start, I want to give a quick shout out to my sponsor this quarter, Spec. Spec is a leader in the customer journey management space with their patented Trust Cloud platform that connects you to any fraud vendor through a no-code implementation. This allows you to have full control and visibility into your customer journeys, orchestrate and operationalize any fraud, abuse, and payments API, and take action on your website without having to negotiate priority with your engineering teams. The Spec Trust Cloud keeps you up to date as your needs change over time. Please check them out by visiting www.specprotected.com to learn about how they can help your fraud fighting future. Now let's dive into the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Fraud Boxer Podcast. Uh, a couple months ago, I did a fun episode talking all about sales and uh, the do's and don'ts right before the MRC on, on what to sell, how to sell to us fraud folks. Um, but today, I have a special treat. I talked a little bit about um, a good sales experience that I had with somebody on that particular episode, and I've actually invited that person onto this podcast to talk about what their approach is to sales what it was like selling to me because, you know, I have that reputation. So I have Matt Friend from Riskified here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad we could make this work. You know, I think we have a, a an interesting history that, that I would like to talk about and kind of highlight over that. And then we can kind of talk about like your approach to sales specifically and what works for you and what you found works for you um, at your various different companies. So I think you've had some marquee companies that you've worked for. Um, and I think you have an interesting background in sales. So let's let's just kind of let's talk about how we met first and foremost, shall we? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll never forget it. What a pivotal moment in my life. No, so I was I had been working for Riskified for a few months, and I was engaged with the current company you're at in a sales cycle. And towards the beginning of it, you actually joined the company as the senior director of fraud. So yeah. you know, we've been engaged, having a conversation, and all of a sudden. You'd come in and you had some experience with Risk Five in the past, so we were connected. And yep. um, yeah, that's really how we've met. It's always challenging to come into a company that's mid cycle like that because I was brought in at, at the process with the intent to help streamline and, and change the software. And I heard now we wanted to evaluate the software that we we're currently using, but we had uh, they had already begun the process on a couple of uh, RFPs and POCs um, when I joined. And it's always an interesting spot to come in because I have experience with a lot of these these vendors in this space. Um, and I have opinions about some of these vendors in this space. I was happy to see you guys on there because like I, like you said, you know, I had worked with you at my previous company on a very specific piece of our business to a, a great, a great margin of success there. Like I was happy with the performance anytime that you could take a high risk channel and it was gift cards at that point and um, not have to worry about it and be hands off on it is a very nice place to be and see it working. So I, I had, I had a lot of confidence in you guys, but I had never used you guys in, in a product of, of this size. Now, people don't understand like how big iHerb is. We are a very large company. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think actually just like to kind of think about it from a sales perspective, you know, we had been speaking with a colleague of yours who had been driving the cycle and then you came in. And I think from a salesperson's perspective, there's always a ton of worry. Oh my gosh, we have a good thing yeah. going. We have is he going to kill it? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Is he going to bring in the people who've been working with before? And I think, and I think, you know, something I really appreciate it is, you know, you, you looked at it, you 
you know, obviously enjoyed working with Riskify in the past. We're willing to give us a chance to turn the business to but it wasn't, I'm coming in and for the purpose of control, I'm going to bring everything back to the beginning and start fresh, but rather, yeah. you know, what's the lay of the land and, you know, what is the best thing to do here? So I think that was really great because oftentimes it's a huge fear of salespeople when new people come and go that everything's going to be lost. And that, you know, going back to some of the other episodes that I've done again, um, talking about like people when they join organizations, how they, how they act and how they react. I think that that is a, the biggest mistake. And, and I've seen it happen just way too many times is when somebody joins an organization and they just change everything they want, like without understanding the underlying process. And that, that's, a, that, that sets you up for failure almost every single time. You don't see people that, that come in and, and try and, uh, be the big swing and you know what when they walk in the door that never ever ever works out for them like and I, I just watched another one burn up recently and i mean it's it, it you got to set your ego aside sometimes and you got to even though you might be coming with, in with a high title and coming in with a ton of quote experience is it experience in this field is it experience in this type of business like i i had worked in supplements in the past and in health and wellness but that was a completely different type of business like we were selling our own products that we had created and we had set up different businesses and this business is is a more regular classic e-commerce where we're buying products at wholesale and selling them on our site you know where we have suppliers we have vendors we do have our own products that we do make our house brands but we are a traditional e-commerce website we just happen to sell in regions that most people don't want to do business in but i needed to step back and understand where we were how the business worked why why we were talking to these people and where we were we were trying to put them in order to get an actual real understanding and i just cannot stress that enough people like if you really want to know like real resources go buy the book the first 90 days and use that as your literal bible for when you join a new company it will not let you down it just won't stop trying to like prove a point and act like you need to make an impact to the, the first day the people that hired you will understand that you need to actually take some time to learn the business before you start changing things because if you change things and you break something then you're going to look like an asshole yeah no i mean and i think what's the old saying right it takes a lifetime to build trust and a second to lose it i think yeah. you know coming to organizations better to ask questions and be a more mild version of yourself um versus say something that can't be taken back and i think again the same is true in sales if i you know come to you and i make an assumption about the oh. business of supplements, the assumption of fraud. And again, you know, I've been in the fraud world for a couple of years. You've been in your whole life. You know, I, I'm the expert on riskified. I'm certainly not the expert on fraud nor your world. And I think trying to pretend that and have confidence is only going to backfire. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, we went through a long process. And I think we'll talk about that kind of in, in the next little section, well, the two sections from now. But yeah, I think even the, the first time we even met was uh, you actually were, were happened to be because you live in New York and you flew over to Los Angeles and it was around Christmas time, I believe, because I had just joined and uh, you were going to see some family over here and you're like, let's go get a drink. And I actually made you come all the way to my own bar that I like in Fullerton. <laughs> oh, that place was awesome. Oh, I mean, I do no free it. shout outs, but shout out to uh, Roscoe's, correct? Roscoe's, not chicken and waffles, everybody. Roscoe's famous deli in downtown Fullerton. No. It's uh, it's it's my Friday night spot. <laughs> it's just where and I it go. was. And I guess for us, I think Friday night started at around 3.30 p.m. that day. Um, and it was Christmas time because I recall you walked up with, I think it was a Santa hat. But oh, no, and that was that it. night. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Which was awesome. But no, I mean, we had, I think we had um, been working together kind of at the beginning of sales cycle for a couple months. And you know, I think you'd you know, been real warm to us with your existing relationship with Riskified, but we'd only met on Zoom and on the phone. And I think that day we sat down for, gosh, two, three hours. 
and just yeah. talked very little business and just a lot of life getting to know each other over you know beers and maybe one or two tequilas and I think like yeah. again that's such a such a good foundation of trust. Um, it it comes back to what I said like on that that last podcast that I did before MRC about sales was like the relationship building is is like so often companies get so freaked out about these expense reports for taking a, a client out to dinner, you know, and, or drinks. And they're like, well, we don't want to see a bunch of cocktails on, on an expense re- receipt, but the value that you get out of just having a couple hours and a couple of beers, like the, 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 the foundation that you get from that is so valuable and it goes a long, a really long ways and just like trusting somebody versus just looking at them through zoom. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, I'm, I'm really happy we had the opportunity that day. And, you know, I think over the course of our relationship, both pre-purchased, even post, we you know, made our way to a couple of football games, spent time together at the conferences. And I think every one of those just, you know, goes leaps and bounds in terms of, I think, you know, hopefully trust going two ways. Yeah, I've uh, I've been very happy with with how our process has worked out. So let's talk a little bit about where you came from, because you you have been in, in the fraud and risk space for about two years but you came from from a kind of a space with a couple of, of marquee names on your resume so let's talk a little bit um about how you got here yeah definitely so i guess i'll start from the top so coming out of college i went to the university of michigan i did what all good undergraduate business school students you're, you're a go blue i'm a go blue i wow. love i love to lose national championship games football basketball you name it we'll lose it yeah um I, what are you guys gonna keep harbaugh like what's the deal with that like i was pulling for you so hard and then just blow it man like what was the oh, deal with that that guy that guy rocks i mean one i think he's a great coach but just like college football just you know someone who says the only vitamin you need is steak who you know has <laughs> a rep who's made khakis cool again like yeah. he's just such a and he wore cleats he wears remember because when he because you're a 49er fan too but remember when he slipped and fell on his ass on the sideline and then he started wearing cleats forever after that but like he, he is insane I, I just don't understand how you guys blew it and then we got that horrific championship game with georgia just blowing it out again like <laughs> how you guys should have been there yeah, no, um, that's that's when I, I've been working to forget. Um, as yeah. I keep saying, you know, we're we're a basketball school now. It is what it is. But yeah, are you no, are so you in the I, tournament still? An IT maybe. Yeah, okay, there we go. That's what I thought. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> Everybody, uh, so when we're I, recording this, it's it's the sweet sixteen uh week. So um it's it's gonna be a little bit of a delay before this episode comes comes out. So that's why I said is the tournament like you're still yeah. in it because it's still happening yeah. when this episode is being exactly. recorded. Exactly. <laughs> no, and regardless, we didn't even make it in. But no, that yeah. has been. Hey, Oregon didn't make it in either. Oregon didn't make it in either. So I didn't have a dog in the fight. So now I just I watch for Gonzaga to make it as far as they possibly can, and then pray for them to lose at the end. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that, that's how I feel about Ohio State. So um, anyway, so <laughs> after after college at, at that that blue school, that school up north, I went to go work in consulting at Ernst and Young. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of funny when I was in, in college, I, I think for a lot of people, you have a very narrow view of like, what is available to you in the world? Um, and you know, in that school I was in, it was okay. Well, I can go work in banking or consulting, um, and consulting seemed more fun. So I did that, but I moved back to San Francisco where I'm from. And, you know, while I was doing that role, I was walking to my first engagement, which was with the client, the financial district. I was wearing my slacks, my button down, my sports coat, oh. to work. And I saw all my friends in the Bay Area who were wearing jeans and a t-shirt, yeah. doing super interesting jobs, you know, making great money out, you know, right out of college. 
you know, so excited by what they're doing. And I said, wait, tech, you know, tech, man. Like other jobs outside of, you know, biz- banking and consulting out of college. Like, what is this? And it was just funny, like that there was such a narrow scope of what, you know, I thought were, you know, the, the job markets outside of college. So I was, you know, working in financial services consulting for a couple of years, um, you know, focusing actually ironically on financial crimes, more on like anti-money laundering. Yeah, FinCEN stuff. Exactly. Um, but, you know, began to meet all these friends who were in the world of technology sales and ended up, you know, through a network connection, moving to one of the large buy now, pay later businesses, a firm um, after a couple of years of consulting. And that was my entrance into sales. I think it was actually a really interesting experience. I was there for a couple of years. Um, and I think like, even though it was only a short period of time, the development of it being a novel concept to around the time I joined, really picking momentum and becoming table stakes where everyone's got to have a solution yeah. to the P, you know, the payments providers and PayPal all of a sudden rolling it out with an existing solution to, um, you know, just becoming truly ubiquitous. And it's interesting also, again, bringing it back to sales and thinking about like, what are the different kinds of sales where, you know, at the beginning and before I joined, it was category creation. It was going to retailers and pitching on this crazy idea of, hey, you should offer installment payments directly on your website. And it wasn't why is a firm better than Klarna, Afterpay, whatever. It was the idea that you should use a service like this. And then yeah. right on the time I was leaving, it was, you're going to use a buy now, pay later provider. Let me tell you why we're better than these guys. And ultimately, they're all seem to be the same and it comes down to price. So you had to sell, you had to sell the idea first for the half of it. And then you had to sell the product for the second half of it. Exactly. I think it's really interesting. You know, when you look at especially the technology world where some products are novel concepts and you're just pitching them on the idea that they should do something like this and then more mature products, it's okay. I know I need a, you know, bot detection solution. I know I need this and that. Why are you better than the other 20 people doing this? So it's like a very different, I think, approach and way to, you know, educate. So how'd you find uh, Riskified then? So good question. So I had been in a firm, said for about a couple of years, and I, you know, was just ready for my next challenge. And I was really interested in moving to New York. I was in San Francisco at the time. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm interested in moving to business that has an office in New York City. I want to stay in the payments and e-commerce world. And I'd always had this interest in working for an Israeli company. I'd grown up Jewish. I'd spent you know, a small time in Israel. I'd read Startup Nation. Was did just, you do uh, Birthright? I did. I had a small bit. If you can call it a two-week trip, you know, on a big school bus around Israel. Well, isn't that what Birthright is? Like, it's, uh, it, was, it, it is a two-week trip, right? It was, like, no, it was incredible. It was, it was such a cool like, exposure just to you know, I think like a, a totally different part of the world that I felt some connection to and like really wanted to kind of, you know, dive deeper in that and expose myself to more Israelis. So figured, you know, work for an Israeli company is maybe a good way to, you know, scratch that itch without moving all the way out there. Is that why you moved to New York too? Yeah, I think the, well, the New York piece was rather, um, you know, I, there's just something about New York City that feels like a place where I, I wanted to move and I wanted to work and I want to spend some time. Um, they always talk about kind of the, the cutthroat nature, the pace of New York yeah. professionally, and was kind of curious to see what that was like. Um, and it's definitely been faster paced and exciting. And uh, you know, you feel like you're in the center of the universe here. I really, I really enjoyed it. It's it's really that that resonates with me, as we say. Uh, I when I grew up in Oregon, you know, if if anybody wants to know more about my past, you can listen to episode ten. But when I was in Oregon, um, it was it's a certain type of pace. And people are doing a certain type of thing. And you kind of just 
fall into your groove and that's just what your day is, you know? But in LA, which it's the same probably when you're in New York, it's, you feel like you're a part of something, even if you're not almost, you know, like you feel like, like there's something pulling you. And I always have felt more inspired being in Los Angeles than I have anywhere else. Like I feel like every day I want to do something to make sure that I'm not spinning wheels. So it leads to more, more um, reaching for the stars, I guess, as, as they would say out here to try and see what, what could become of it. And, you know, I've obviously had some stumbles along the way, but I would say for the most part, like it's pushed me to be a, a more creative person and um, a more hungry person as far as like always mm -hmm. wanting more and always looking at what's next. Like you set these goals, you achieve these goals, and then like you immediately start going to what's next. Well, I think if I would have stayed in a place like Oregon, like the goal would have been the middle part and just staying there. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I think, you know, like I grew up in an area that definitely had, I mean, San Francisco has a pretty fast pace of its own, right? Yeah. But um, there's some out in New York and I'm sure like in LA and just to a place where everyone around you is doing something and is, is yep. pushing for something. I don't feel like there's a lot of contentness and maybe that's actually not the best thing for your mental or physical health, but everyone feels like they can do better. And when you look around and see everyone else pushing, you know, it yeah. makes you, I think, feel like if you're not doing the same thing, you are stagnant. Yeah. And I, and that's a great way to put it. When you talk to your friends and they, they tell you what they're up to, even if they're lying, uh, it makes you be like, well, shit, I could probably try and do that too, you know, and try and try and push for more. And I, like, yeah. I tried to move away a couple of times. I, I did my, my stint in the Bay Area for a little over a year. Uh, I went back to Oregon for a year and there's, there's no place like home. You know, I have, I have to be here. I, I, I'll die here. That's just how it's going to yeah. be at the end of the day. But I did come no, see so, you in New York once. Uh, you no, and I, I went know. to Limp Biscuit, bro. I forget. <laughs> yeah. Is awesome i, <laughs> I never in my world would have thought i would have gone to a limp biscuit concert hysterical but again also i think there's something you know personally like talk about feeling like in the center of the universe you get to go to madison square garden like a world-renowned venue and you get bands like limp biscuit go yeah. there and go on tour there and down the street there's some event and down the street there's some event and you know professionally i mean especially you know, working in the retail world so many of the the businesses the clients that we either work with or would like to work with are down the street such an amazing thing to say, oh my gosh, you're you know located midtown, you're located in the West Village. Let's get coffee, let's get lunch. It's um it's great to just be around everything. One of the things that I like to do right now, it's like a kind of a newer thing, is like um I think it, it yeah. came from like I live in, in downtown Fullerton and it's a really walkable city, even though it's only a couple of blocks, but the the businesses there, there's so many of them. And I love to just like if you are in like a play or a restaurant or in a bar and you want to try something new, like right now, you just can walk out the door five feet, turn into the next door and it's a completely different scene. And I think that that one thing like in small town USA and in mm -hmm. some of the big towns, those streets and those downtowns that you walk are over so quickly that you don't get enough like cool exposure. And I feel like when I'm in New York, it's, like you can just walk down any street and there's a ton of different businesses that you've never seen, like a ton of different bars, ton of different restaurants. And you could just have a different experience like every night for the rest of your life. And that's mm -hmm. just super cool to me, in my opinion. Yeah, no, It's just something totally. new I've been thinking about and doing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you were doing that. I think it's a bit of a mindset where I think there's people who live in a New York or Los Angeles or, or wherever, and you have amazing every single day you walk out of your apartment and you take a left, you walk out of your house, you take a left. 
and you say, hey, I'm going to go the long way and take a right today. And it's a mindset. And then you stumble upon those new things. I think even if there's stuff available to you, um, I think you just need to make a conscious decision to get out of your routine, which we're all so busy and so concerned about our, our day-to-day lives. I think you know, we sometimes forget that you know, 15 minutes of breaking it up every day could really add so much joy and discovery. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. It's just everybody just uh, doesn't make those 15 minutes. They're always 15 minutes behind. Totally. Ah. No, so you, you'd ask though, just to kind of close the loop, you'd ask like how I got into fraud. So I, you know, I'd been interested in staying in payments and moving to New York in looking for an next opportunity. And this is actually really funny. So I had a, my dad works in the gift card industry. And, you know, I remember like growing up, he would go to these conferences and he would come back with all the gift card swag, um, keychains, you know, water bottles, whatever, just, you know, the, the, the billion dollar industry of knickknacks and our, mailbox key had been for years like an og riskified little lanyard so the original r probably like the super old r that our founder probably gave him when you know back in the day when it was like a series whatever and the ceo was the one at the booth hustling for leads and handing out swag and so like i had this logo when i was doing research for it was really new york e-commerce etc i see this company and something just clicks my head oh i have to apply here and so I began, I did my application, I did my research. And again, like I applied for these kind of bigger picture. Oh, I'd like to be in this geography. I'd like to be in this broader industry. You know, it seems like they're late stage private and on a really interesting trajectory. But then as I dug into it, like the world of fraud and fraud prevention became incredibly interesting, and exciting to me. And it's again, a world where when I was at a firm, many of the BNPLs and alternative payment solutions, as you know, they cover your fraud charge act liability. Or they say they do with the fine print. They say they but, do, and then they push it back uh, two weeks after the item is shipped and say, uh, can you cancel this order? We don't want to pay for it because they just can't handle the volume. But yeah, that's my opinion. Exactly. So I was, you know, at a firm, we just told the line. And I, I, I think it was very, fairly true, although maybe I should have read the fine print of, oh, yeah, we, we cover fraud, charge check liability on the, um, on the on the things that are made, paid through our payment method. But then learning more about you know, the world of fraud management, e-commerce fraud management, especially working risk fight, it all of a sudden became so exciting. And I really loved the idea of how we make money is saving money for our clients. And it's basically save X and then, you know, risk fight is paid a portion of that. And I'll tell you about the ROI and business cases. But I really like the idea of like there being a, a, a super clear, you know, financial relationship and financial, um, model for hey like we're going to create savings for you by stopping loss and crime and fraud and you know our our revenues are some portion of that typically so i really also liked that model where like you're causing you're creating very clear value for your clients and it's not by creating additional spend in the world it's not by allowing some solution for you know marketing or hr etc which i have no problem with but i just really liked the idea of hey, we're stopping theft and loss, then that's the business model for us as Riskified. So that really struck a chord with me. Went through the interview process, met some amazing people, was lucky enough to get the job. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So, they haven't fired me yet. Yeah. And was, was this your first real time doing sales, sales, sales though? Like, like because you, you, you kind of did sales at a firm, but it was a different type of thing though, right? It was yeah, selling, exactly. like it was selling a, a add-on, payment method when here like you have to like completely rip out basically what you were doing already and bolt a whole new thing on right like it's kind of yeah. different right 
Well, I think I would say at a firm, I was in kind of what we more call like SMB mid-market sales, where it's, you know, smaller clients, smaller contract sizes, much quicker sales cycles with a lot less questioning. I think the end-to-end sales cycle is about two weeks at a firm. And at Riskified, a lot of the projects I work on, you know, can go for up to a year. And, you know, it's what we call kind of an industry enterprise sales, where it's larger contracts, more complex projects, technically speaking, right? ripping out how do you connect, how are we going to work with your existing systems? And I think, you know, larger businesses have more complex tech stacks that require a lot more, I think, diligence and thoughtful solutioning. Yep. But also because these are bigger contract sizes, you know, vendors like Riskified are able to invest more in kind of custom solution architecture, um, which makes it a lot more interesting, but again, a lot more challenging because it's not, hey, install this widget. If it doesn't work, take it out. It's, hey, you know, there's going to be a lot of time and effort to diligence this, to set it up, to install it, you know, we're getting in bed together. So you really better like this, be confident about it because otherwise you're stuck. That's where I think like you see more people doing POCs now versus like just trying to do historical data analysis and and hoping for the lift. Um, Yeah. So what, tell me about your history with sales, the stigma around sales and that sort of thing. Cause I know like not everybody, I feel like most people that wind up in sales, like that was never their really plan, but it was like, they, they kind of fell into it right away. Um, but yeah. like the people that survive for a long time, you know, are usually a little more cutthroat. Um, what are your opinions on that? Yeah. Well, you know, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I had a lot of like negative stereotypes about the, the sales world um, prior to entering it. And I think a lot of that is just like, gosh, I don't know if it's media, but when I think sales, I truly think of aggressive car, you know, like used car salespeople are just trying yes, to get there. I do too. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe there's some truth that I don't know, but no, I, cause I think it's, it's sales as, Hey, you know, buy my things so I can get mine. And I think like there are a hundred percent salespeople like that in the world. And I think, you know, with any kind of profession, there's, you know, selfish people, but I think, um, you know, just number one, like you don't, in my opinion, become a successful salesperson, have a long career acting like that because it's a small world. And I mean, let's think about the world of fraud management, for example, if I was ever to like, burn you or give you a bad experience, Jordan, it's a small enough world and you have a big enough voice where, you know, my ability to be successful in this industry is, is going to be crushed. I mean, so, I don't want to, I don't want to say that's true necessarily, <laughs> but, no, but even, you know. <laughs> but yeah, and I think it's so important to think about your reputation. And I think that like, and just the last tangent on this, like people are, are maybe should be selfish. And that's totally fine, but it's in my selfish best interests to do the right thing because if I do the wrong thing, it's a short-term win. If I do the right thing over and over and over again, it'll reap benefits. Um, but anyways, I had this idea about sales. And then I'm, when I moved to San Francisco, I started meeting really smart, good people who were had salespeople on their LinkedIn title. And I said, what's the disconnect? What is this person who has a Stanford MBA, a Harvard MBA doing as a technology salesperson? And it just, it didn't connect. And I said, okay, well, maybe my entire persona and idea of this role was wrong. And I started to do my homework and realized that there's different kinds of sales. And the one we were talking about before enterprise sales is it's a really difficult, thoughtful, um, you know, thoughtful role and it has a lot of really smart people in it. And it was a lot more complex and challenging than I thought. Um, And so that's kind of what allowed me to flip the switches, you know, meeting someone versus believing these stereotypes based on, you know, gosh, whatever TV. I think that that's a, that's an interesting way to put it, you know, is like the, the enterprise sales, you know, for like, like the, the line on SMB is, 
is still pretty high. Like the companies can still do hundreds of millions of dollars and still be considered an SMB. And a company can do a billion dollars and still be considered an SMB. But when you get into these enterprise level sales where these, these companies are several billion dollars, tens of thousands of people that work for them, a lot of people have to sign off on these individual things where you might be working for this year, like you said, on, on the sales thing for one small piece of that business. And then once you get into that one small piece of that business, then you can try and push in to get more of the business, you know? And that's where I think, you know, especially like we talked about on my last episode is these, these sales cycles. And I think that's where a lot of like the newer salespeople get frustrated is like they expect to come in to this multi-billion dollar company that's existed for a hundred years and do a cold email, jump on a phone, do a demo and have a contract signed in, in three weeks and then be just moving to having integration done when that's just never going to happen. And you need to speak their language. You need to be able to demonstrate ROI. And then after you demonstrate ROI, you need to be able to re-demonstrate that ROI 15 different ways from Sunday, because every little de de department that has an opinion about that is going to have their opinion about something that they need to know about what lift are you going to give them? Because there's like for my business, you know, not only is there is there the fraud prevention and the chargeback side of it, but there's the approval rates, there's the conversion, there's the false positive rates that the customer service team has to worry about. There's a ton of other reasons why I would need to pick one specific product and what that lift is going to be because of that product. So if I, great, you can reduce my chargebacks two basis points, but at what cost? Are you going to have 3% more false positive rate? Because that for our business could probably be a net negative. You know, are you going to drop my approval rates 4%? Because that's going to be a net negative. So you need to look at these different slices of this ROI across multiple touch points of the business that might not necessarily be owned by one person and getting those other people in the room, just doing that alone can take weeks, like months yeah. sometimes. Certainly. No. And I think that's why, you know, come back to the trust. It's so, you know, there, there, there's an, an industry term, it's called a champion. Like us salespeople, we look to have a champion at our clients. And champion is the person mm. who's going to champion us or push us within the organization. And you're not to be too corny, Jordan, but like you've been yeah. my champion at IRB because oh, no. all of these things are like <laughs> things that I wouldn't be aware of, of what does this organization care about? And what does this team care about? What does this person care about? And, you know, I can't, deliver and I can't make things happen for you unless I know what I need to do. And I think you know, having someone who can help you navigate the organization and say, hey, these are the terms you need to be thoughtful about and concede on. These are the things that you know you're okay to have. Um, you know, these are the the features you need to build in your yeah. portal if you want to work with us. But if I don't learn these things, then I can't go fight on your behalf internally. And it's, you know, while we like to ask the right questions and think we can figure things out ourselves having someone who knows the organization inside out to help guide us, I think makes our life a hundred times easier. And I think like one of the things like, especially with, with my podcast specifically is like, I actually do like work in this industry. Like I'm not just doing the podcast and like in talking generalities about it. Like when you and I are having these conversation, like I'm giving specific examples of things that you and I have had to address directly, like things that you and I have had to work on directly because I, uh, I do do this every day. So these are things that I think about these approval rates, dealing with the people that deal with the approval rates, dealing with how like our integration might be like one of the specific things is, is we just did a big RFP on our payments. It was no secret that we were doing it. Um, but you guys had to be a little bit involved in that because there was a component of that 
that would have mattered to you guys on how I do webhooks and, and send you guys my chargebacks automatically. And that matters, like if we're going to be have to be doing additional lift internally in order to get you that information, is our win rate going to suffer because of that? And those sorts of things factored even into that piece of our business there, just like it factored in when we were making the decision with you guys, if you guys had these connections to internal services that we use. Uh, I mean, just other things like we look at like fraud and chargebacks at the end of the day isn't the end all be all of, of what my team has to worry about. Uh, we have to worry about like abusive behaviors too. And I, I did that podcast with Al on here about abuse trends that we're seeing, but that was very top of mind for us because these are things that we're seeing happen at our actual business that we needed to address. And you guys, like you and I have this communication, this dialogue that's been successful with the two of us because I can freely talk about these things that are happening to me and then ask you a question like can you help with these things and you you have you and i have the rapport where i think so many sales people would just say yes automatically even if they could or couldn't but you and i have the rapport to, to that you can say no to me if there's something that you guys can't do and, yeah. and i think for the most part like for the most of the, the real heavy lifting things that that we've come come across together on this journey that we've had for the past year and a half like you've been able to help me with and i think that we still have some more areas of opportunity that that we can expand into um as long as you get the pricing right um <laughs> but, but uh you know i i think it's just it's it's interesting to see how our needs have evolved as we've done more of these exploratory things you know we started out with this one singular focus of trying to make our fraud more accurate and faster and then mm -hmm. now we have this whole other like set that we're looking at you know does that make sense mm -hmm. there's a lot in yeah there. no totally no and no, i mean i think you said a few things which i totally agree with um you know number one is just like i think someone being comfortable saying no to you because it's like a, a very scary thing as a salesperson if you say no well gosh someone's saying yes you're gonna lose it so it's i think for a lot of people out there who are listening to this um i think it's important to know that you should say no when you truly can't do something. You give yeah. a qualified no if there's a maybe to it. But again, I think that comes back to the trust piece. Um, and I think also like the the kind of I think your the experience you've had in the industry and enabling you to think about the big picture implications of things, I think is really interesting too, because fraud has a ton of downstream implications. Um, as you mentioned, like we like to think about it as a revenue generator because if a fraud event happens and you batten down the hatches. It's the CRO and CFO are going to come yelling at you saying, why is conversion dropping? Um, yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, your many of your tools are the ones that are being used by marketing to understand who are their customers because a lot of the information funnels through fraud. And so as you change your fraud tools, there are downstream implications there, as we've talked about. Um, but again, I think things that, you know, like uh, without the experience, the industry is just difficult to to understand the entire crazy web ecosystem of how an organization works and how fraud kind of finds itself with its fingers and everything. Yeah. And I've been a yeah. part of like, you know, both like super large organizations and like SMBs, you know, like I've, I've even small businesses that, that I've, I've done this role in and I've done them in a mixed pattern where I had like a, a fairly large billion dollar business that I worked for first. And then I went, to another like well no probably a little smaller business there and then i went to a really small business and then back up to like massive massive like i've gone up and down on this journey you know so i get to see that's where i think i, I get a little unique picture of of how these processes work because like every business like i said at the beginning has a different 
operating procedure that need to be aware. Like some businesses focus only on growth. They don't care so much about profitability. When more mature businesses, you know, like that have shareholders that are public need to focus on more about the profitability because that, that affects their, their standing on wall street. But yeah. I think it, it's it, it, to have these different outlooks and, and be able to, to know where you need to look is, is something. And that changes too, you know, as like, as fraud attacks change, um, as, as we like, even right now in this industry, where we're moving more from a, solely fraud focus because that's always where like the area of opportunity was more to these abuse focuses where there's other there's full percentage points of, of opportunity around these rewards around like yeah. um like the returns around all of these loyalty programs that are being gamed you know like you need to be more in it in my opinion to really have like an actual picture and be able to talk yeah. to these things more than than i think you know do you, do you mind if i ask you a uh, ask you a question about being a buyer Sure. Like back when I was a buyer buyer or back or buying software right now. So buying software now and yeah. all these roles. So you've been yeah. where you are. You've been at other large enterprises. You've been at small companies. You've consulted on behalf of various size companies. I'm curious, like, well, I guess, number one, you know, being a buyer at a small company versus a big company, how that's been different. Just I talked about selling SMB software yeah. versus big software. And also like being a buyer at a company where it's the elephant in the room and it's massive and you get whatever you want, whatever you want like that. Yeah. And then moving to companies that are smaller and like all of a sudden, you know, people treat you differently. So I just been curious to hear how your buying experience as a software buyer has been different as you've changed companies. Cause I have to yeah. imagine it, it's changed. I think um, so it's, it's I have a couple different ones. So I think like usually it's for me, it's a little bit more of a, you have to demonstrate value and you have to get a real proposal together that really, really, really shows ROI. So typically like what I did here at this company was I took all of the numbers and that includes salary, that includes chargebacks, that includes like what our basis points are, what our projections are. I met with finance, I met with our FP&A team to get forecasts over the next couple of years, what our actual costs are, what our individual sales are, uh, and you put it into a spreadsheet and hopefully you're really good at Excel because you you end up boiling down like what I typically do. And I typically boil it down to what is the cost of an individual transaction to prevent fraud? And that's an mm -hmm. all in cost that includes chargebacks, that includes salaries, and that includes cost of tools. Now, that make sure that salary includes your salary to everybody because so often um, these finance teams will give you everybody but your salary, include your salary because you're part of the thing too, because uh, you're part of the cost of that. And then any proposals that you get from other team, like from other tools, put them all in that same spreadsheet with the same algorithms. Now with you guys, it's a little different because um, how you guys bill is a little different than how some of the other companies bill that I've ever stacked you guys up against. And I get, but either way, you should be clever enough with your Excel that you wind up with a per transaction cost all in to prevent fraud at your company. And this is across everything. So even if like you get 10,000 chargebacks and you did 30 million transactions in a year, like, the, the every single one of those 30 million has a cost in it to actually prevent fraud. And you should know what that is. And you should always know what that is in order to, if someone asks you that at your company, now I won't say what that is at my company because that's clearly secret information, but you should always know that. Now, when you have that number and you're able to demonstrate that it's, it's easier to go to either a procurement team. If you're a very large company or probably a, a C a CFO if you're a smaller company. And what I typically do is I type up like a, a big old document that says the why, like what, what will be where we are, 
and we call that current reality. This goes back to some Robert Fritz consulting that I did forever ago. The current reality of where we are. So we have X number of people reviewing X number of transactions, which is X percentage of our overall business, um, and they at a cost of X. Okay, and some of the out like the outputs of that is you know we have we wind up with false positive rates. We wind up with like orders being on hold, customers getting frustrated, blah 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 blah, whatever it may be. If you have that sort of thing, and then you look at another tool. And not just the cost too, but what are some of the opportunities? So if you put this tool in, would you still need 15 people doing manual review? Would you need six people fighting chargebacks all day? Would you be able to outsource some of that at a, at a per like chargeback cost? Like what is the value that you get on switching? Then you, you'll wind up there and you write that second. So here's our, our possible future state. And then in order to get there, you want to put, then we're going to need, you know, so if you if you have a large company, usually you have like a product resource that's available to you. And what you would want to do is give them the, the documentation from the new product and you ask for what a scope is on mm-hmm. how long would it take you in order to implement this. And usually pretty good product people uh, will be able to give you like they won't give it to you right then and there, but they'll need to talk to a couple people and say we would need six months, eight months, 18 months in order to, to put this in. And you have to put that in. Now, there is a cost that can be associated with that. So some product people will be able to say at a cost of $100,000. And you need to factor that in too, because changing is going to cost money. It takes mm-hmm. another project off the board from your whole product of your whole company on something that they're building in order to change your tool. So there's a cost there. But if you can demonstrate that you're over the next two, three, whatever the term of your contract is, probably going to be five years because we don't want to be changed on our fraud tool every year, or every three mm-hmm. years. That's kind of annoying. You want to actually then you'll be able to find an actual dollar if there is a real return on that investment. And then you can put your proposal. I suggest that I, we do this and you may or may not get the sign off on that. But um, I would say that most of the time I've got the sign off because I don't ask unless I'm really determined. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I've had like some of the the smaller companies, usually it's at the end of that email, it's like, yes, go ahead and do it. And then we just start the contract process there. Mm-hmm. Um, at larger companies, it's taken a little more time. Um, I've had, it took me three years to get a, a change at um, when I was at NBC on a product yeah. that we were using there. Um, and it's, it's been, so at, at some of the larger companies, changing pieces of it is quicker than changing like the, the whole, whole thing, you know, so you, you start to like, if you had add on pieces, like if you had an identity solution and you wanted to swap one of those out, that's an easier change than changing out the whole tool. If you had a device ID thing, that's easier than changing out because those are smaller pieces of it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I've had ones where it's taken several years and I've had ones where I've done a proposal and the numbers added up and they've said no, uh, just because they don't want to do the work. They don't want to mm-hmm. make a change. So um, it's it had different different levels of, of that. But I have had salespeople that got frustrated with the process and just bailed out. And I've had salespeople that have grinded out and waited those three years and, and got the deal, you know? And yeah. then I've had salespeople that like understand that there's a no now, but like then, you know, two years later, I've sent them an email and said, let's get back on this. And then we've come to an agreement there. So it's it's kind of all over the place. I don't know if that answered your question, but um, no, you know, hopefully honestly, my, my audience got some value. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you that there's two things that stuck out to me. I'll actually talk about the latter one first because um, it's really interesting. You know, as a salesperson, well, I'll work with you know my my point of contact on the other side of the table, and we'll come together on you know, the business case, and it's really tight. It's really you know attractive, and it's going to solve their problems, and then the deal just dies and. Oftentimes it's because they're unable to get it greenlit on their end. 
and and you know I think there could be a lot of frustration. Oh, was it not a good enough deal? Oh, did they not understand what we were trying to portray? Oh, did they end up going with someone else? But oftentimes, no, that person really wanted to make it happen and they were excited and they were excited as excited as us. But there's a hundred other competing projects for those resources. Yeah. There's politics, there's timing. Also, like as important and as exciting as the value we can create is for our clients, you know, we don't know about the other project that might actually have a 10 times bigger ROI or is instrumental for strategic things or politically, you know, there's just someone else that has the ear of the, you know, C, yeah. C fill in the blank. Oh, and they get greenlit. And so I think it is like, oftentimes I think salespeople lack empathy that it's not that it wasn't a good deal. And it's not that the person on the other side of the table didn't want it to happen, but they just didn't get greenlit because it's really hard to move mountains in an organization. Um, yeah. The other thing you shared, which I just thought was interesting is how you go about quantifying the cost of fraud and everything that goes into it. That's how we think about it at Riskified. But I think a lot of folks don't think about it like that. They think about, what is the cents per transaction you're paying? And that's it. And there's so much more that goes into it. And, you know, you might pay more cents per transaction or in the case of Riskified, you know, our financial model is totally different. We charge yeah. those basis points, but we obviously provide a different service. And I think it's a hard thing for folks to understand, digest. And again, it takes an educated buyer like you to then sell it internally. Because also, you know, you sell things to people to get signed off on your own, right? So, I mean, that, that kind of goes that we have, um, you know, we have a couple of, of, of bullet points on here, but let, since we're talking about it, what is it like selling to me? Because you've had to sell to me and we, we had a, a process and this has happened to me a couple of times where a, a world event has, has derailed the process. Uh, I was in some, some processes when I was a ticket master with obviously COVID derailed those, but here, you know, like we had a, a like a war in, where Russia invaded another country and Russia was a large part of our business. And you and I were already deep into our deal and the, the terms of our deal when Putin decided to do that. And it completely changed the timeline of our whole project for like several, several, several months. So what was it like selling to me and going through the process? Yeah. So and again, like I'm not saying these things to flatter you. Um, I'm saying these, th okay. these are the truth. I, you know, I'll, I'll take them either way. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think like you, you really, you know what you're talking about um, from, you know, how the evaluation is done to what the vendors can offer to, you know, uh, I think like some of the deep technical details of literally like how we integrate in, into your system and how we operate and, and work with and send information to you know, some of your other vendors. And I bring that up to say, I think selling to you required me to be on my game and to know my stuff and to bring in the right people, because if I said a, a half, not a half truth, but I said something <laughs> incorrectly, you would call me on it. And I think it really required me to be on my A game. But conversely, I think I've also really appreciated that you knew what you're talking about. Sometimes we feel like, you know, in a sales cycle, the buyer doesn't fully understand our product or their problems, even or the needs. And, you know, it's hard to have a conversation about the actual value because. I think there's a lot of education or maybe they have misconceptions. And with you, I think it was very clear. You knew what you wanted. You knew what the needs were. And it was about checking the boxes and figuring out, you know, did we satisfy those requirements? So, so selling to you me, was difficult, but it was good. Yeah. Let me give you some feedback on, on one thing that you did that I thought was was a good thing that you did, besides being patient and just dealing with how long it took us. But um, one of the things is like, if I did say something or ask you a question specifically about your product, 
and you didn't know the answer to it, you would ask me a clarifying question. You say, what would you mean by that? And then if you didn't know, you would always say, let me take that away and let me go find out. And that's what I would rather have than someone trying to bullshit their way through an answer. Like if you don't know right now, like salespeople, if you don't know the answer to your prospective client's question, say, hey, I don't know, but I'm going to find out for you. And then just take that away and find out. Like they're not going to be pissed about it. They'd much prefer an email follow-up about it than having you just bumble through an answer that doesn't actually give them the answer that they were looking for. Because they're going to know it and they're just going to look at you with that confused face and just go, all right. Because they know. They know. So yeah, go yeah. on. What else, what no, else, what so else think, good about me? More more, more no. ego. <laughs> so I think no, I think that was just the big thing is like having to be on it. Um, and I think you mentioned that, that world event where basically, you know, your, your business you know, was absolutely changed overnight and the priorities were changed overnight and, you know, your, your role was changed overnight. Um, and I think, well, one, obviously that caused things to pause. And there were certainly moments where I was worried, oh gosh, is this going to happen? Yeah. Is this going to fall apart? Um, is Jordan going to be here in a month? And I think, yeah, believe me, I thought about the same damn thing. But I think it comes down to, again, I think like the trust we built were one, Matt, it's good things are going to take time, but like, trust me, like this is still going to happen. Just be patient. And because I knew you, I actually trusted you. But then number two, the requirements of the deal changed and what we needed to do for iHerb to work together changed. And you communicate to me and you said, listen, I know this is an easy ask, but can we do X, Y, Z? I said, Jordan, if we can do X, Y, Z, is this going to be a risk of needs during your business? He said, yes. So I went inside and I made those hard asks, but I had the confidence to say, if we can do this, we'll be able to work with iHerb. And again, you know, you delivered on that. So I think that trust and communication where you could say to me, this is what you need to do. And I believed you and therefore was able to go advocate for it, um, which yeah. I think, you know, you can share your opinion, but I think ultimately that allowed us to both navigate that difficult time. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always like, I think when, when it comes down to, what it's going to take to cross the finish line. Um, it's not always dollars and cents. It um, And sometimes there's blockers that you can get clever and get around. And I've, I've had to have multiple times where I've had to delay things or push things or change things in order to, to make the deal work and now fit or fit the moment right now. Like we know in six months, something's going to be a different, a di we're going to be in a, in a different spot. But right now I need it, but I can't have it unless we do this certain thing. And I'm usually pretty fair. I try to be pretty fair. Like I, I think a lot of people um, do ask a lot from their vendors and be like, I'm the merchant. And sometimes I do that, especially when it's cocktail hour or at a restaurant. Um, but I, I do know when we're in business and we're looking at having a partnership, because like I've said before, like these are partnerships, you're, you're people that I have to work with now for the next three years of my life. And I don't want you guys to hate like dreading when I call now after the email that I sent Mike today, he might be dreading when I call, but, the, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like I know usually what's a fair ask and what is doable versus asking the impossible and I'll only ask the impossible if like it's life or death. You know, but for the most part, like if, if, if it's, if it's life or we're just not going to be working together, like I'll ask a fair and reasonable ask in order to see if we could maintain that. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, certainly. And I think then it's also on me to say, 
that's not going to happen because I'm, I know what we can and cannot give, but I can say, but here's what we can give or, you know, what, what else is important to you? And I think that's also part of it is to understand maybe we can't do this, but what else can we that's a good one. give to you? That's a good one. Yeah. What else is important to you? That that's, that's a good one. That's a strong one. I'd write that down in your little sales notebook over there. <laughs> yeah. No, but the thing is, well, it's a, it's a tactic. I think it just, it comes to the truth of like, Hey, I really want to do this. And I, I, I can't do thing A, but let's talk about B, C, D, E. And maybe we could even do two of those because you never know what's important to the other person until you ask. Yeah. So I think like what it, what it really comes down to, and I think we can boil this, this whole thing as far as the sales piece of this comes down to is it's building a relationship and building trust. Like that really is the foundation of this. And I think that like short-term salespeople that have short-term goals don't understand that they try and be the funny guy. They try and have the jokes um, and they just try and get in and get out. But if you, earn the trust and you build the relationship through meetings, through steak dinners, through asking questions. I think that that is where people have more success in these larger long-term situations. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree when it is going to take a long time when there's multiple parts of the sale, we begin on one part of the business, move to the other, et cetera. It takes that trust. I would also say though, and I'm curious for your opinion, I think um, respect is another thing. I think there's a lot of, you know, yeah. you can maybe meet a really nice sales guy who's taking you to dinner, who's bringing you to the games, who's saying, "Hey, how's your family?" Blah blah. But I, and, but if you know, I don't feel like they know what they're doing. They know how to navigate the organization. They understand and care about your business. I think that matters too. So I think something that I take pride in myself is I really try to do my homework on you know some of the details about our business and our products and our industry maybe beyond what I need yeah. to know, because I think it goes a long way in terms of you think saying Matt cares and Matt, you know, wants to know my business and wants to do the best by me. So I don't know if you'd agree with that too. Yeah, that's a good thing. Like I've had a, I mean, I'm obviously friends with a lot of vendors in this industry too. And I've had a bunch of them messaging me after the last MRC that they've been getting the same sales emails from other vendors that I've been getting because these these new salespeople are just throwing out like all these emails, you know, just as many as they can get because they saw that they were on the attendee list and they're not looking and taking the time to do the research on like, is this a competitor of our exact company? Like, should I even be sending this email? But it's it a little bit does go a long ways. It's it's it comes back to that other thing that I said it was like like I hate salespeople that just like jump into a cold email and say, hey, um, let me I can lower your charts back rate. And it's like, well, you don't know what my chargeback rate is, you know? So like, mm -hmm. let's not start with that conversation telling me you could do something that you have no basis in reality of what, what that current thing is. And like, I wasn't here granted at the beginning of when you guys were, were cold calling uh, iHerb, but I will say like when you and I just started talking, we didn't, we didn't start with promises. We started about yeah. like more about where we were, my knowledge of the product, your knowledge of my business and where we think some opportunities might be now granted when i when i'm engaged in the sales process like i have pretty usually pretty specific goals in mind that i have um so even even though like i was i was pretty fresh like i knew what the company's overall goal was going to be from a new tool now i didn't know what the current reality necessarily was them the first time on our call <laughs> but i was able to find that out and like so i had a pretty good idea of where i needed you guys to land so when we were going through these pitches like you and I could focus on the things that mattered. 
there. Yeah, certainly. Um, and also just, I mean, learning about your business for people who don't think vitamin supplements and nutrients are interesting. This is a sexy industry. It has been so fun learning about it. It is a very, very, very interesting thing. And like, for the most part, like, you know, obviously when, when there's a global pandemic and people are sick, like it's, it's great to be in the health and wellness spot because people are trying to get those zinc, you know, they need to get the things that they need to, to boost their immune system, Mm -hmm. take the probiotics, feel better. But you know, right now, like the world as in general is more health conscious than it used to be. So we see people trying to care about their health, their longevity a lot more. And, and a lot of these, these markets that, that we do business in this have been historically underserved, you know, like people, people in Africa would like to have some vitamin D too, you know, like it's not yeah. exclusively a developed nation thing. And we're happy to give that to them, but we we want it to be safe and secure. We want them to be transacting properly, but also in the payment methods that they want to use uh, wallets are a lot more popular in other countries than they are in the U S you know, we need to be sensitive to that. Like we do take 39 different APMs here at, at uh, iHerb. So it's, it's a very complex business. So it takes time for someone to understand it. And I am happy that you took that time. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the international piece is, is incredibly interesting. And I think that's one of the unique things working with IRB and I've, I've had to learn in the fraud space. Um, you know, fraud is different in every single country, not just in terms of risk, but in terms of, gosh, these countries pick up at lockers versus shipping to yep. homes. These countries have a 10-day delay between when the order was made and when the funds are captured because they go to the local convenience yeah. store and pay in cash at you know 7-Eleven. Then they have 30 days be. before the government releases the funds back to us. Mm-hmm. And these are the nuances that I think do matter because it affects you. If we're not taking into consideration those little pieces of solution design, you know, and we say, oh, you know, the funds weren't captured within three days, we need to cancel. Well, that's going to screw up everything on your end. So it does matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, and it's, I mean, it's crazy again, the, the international piece of IRB's business. Yeah. And that's, I think why, like we will continue to, to grow and have success in those regions because it's just such a complex space that like a lot of people are just scared to touch it, you know, and we'll continue to do it. Like people, like there, there's other companies that will ship like little things there here and there, you know, but not at the scale we have, you know, we, we have, fulfillment centers in so many different countries and get things there so fast. And we hire people that understand these, these local governments that we just, we're going to continue to to see success. And then like, even when like in, in a recession, like health and wellness products tend to to do still pretty solid business through those recessions. You know, it's not something like vitamins is not something that people usually cut back on very much. So not a, not super worried there, but I mean, always got to have a little bit of, of uh risk adverseness but you know i think that we're going to be okay and i think that we're actually going to even prosper coming through this yeah certainly so let's talk a little bit um as we begin to wrap up here let's talk about some of the current trends that are happening in your world with the riskified what you guys are focusing on and then we'll talk about the the top three trends that we talk about every episode so let's do those yeah certainly so i think when i think about the trends at riskified um I think there's two things. I think macro, and it was really interesting. I was at the MRC conference, um, you know, gosh, it was a couple of weeks ago. You were there as well. And it's interesting to talk to people who have been in the industry forever. And when they sometimes hear the word riskified, oh, riskified, that's that company that looks at declines and approves them and takes on the liability. And no, riskified is this company that, you know, reviews, decides on and guarantees 100% of transactions at 
multi-billion dollar merchants around the world. Well, you guys started with that that decline thing. That's how you guys got the market penetration. When you started, you got big companies to take on, like pass pass you their trash. And you guys mm -hmm. found gold in their trash pile, you know. But then I would say, geez, five, six years ago, you switched to more of a of a main focus to be a main yeah. provider. Totally. No, and I just say on that note, and I wasn't there at that time, but it sounds like you know, risk of is really, I think, especially among folks who've been in the industry for a long time, really kind of come over that hump of, you know, the the reputation is no longer that interesting niche idea, but really a leader in the space, which, you know, I feel so lucky to have joined an organization and to stand on the shoulders of giants and people that have put in that work over the past 10, 12 years to go from, you know, this this new kid on the block to ultimately, you know, someone who plays and wins against the best. So that's, I think, been a really cool, interesting change, but more on the product level, this whole push you mentioned earlier into abuse, you know, that yeah. loss doesn't just stem from a chargeback, but that loss stems from the individual claims the item never arrived and that they want a new pair of sneakers sent to their home from the, you know, the individuals like myself, maybe once or twice who have made 20 new accounts to get 10% off your first yeah. purchase of different email addresses. I know I'm the worst and are leaking marketing dollars. And, you know, using our core competency to develop solutions and products to combat that kind of abuse, because ultimately, you know, that is money that's leaving retailers' pockets that shouldn't be. And, you know, our, our objective is how can we keep as much of the money in our retailers' pockets as possible while not giving the good customers friction in a bad time. And so developing products to serve those use cases has been super interesting and what I love about selling it, though, is, as you know, we've kind of had some of these conversations, there's a lot of really interesting nuance you don't consider, you know, okay, well, what about this edge case? What about, you know, how it's going to interact with this system? There's so many new things I think that we all need to think about in order for this new class of products to be successful. And I've just absolutely loved, I think, being on the front lines of, you know, helping kind of provide the feedback from the field to our product folks who are incredible and churning out really good solutions. Uh, so what are the um, top three trends that you're seeing overall? Yeah. So I think number one, we're, I don't know if we're in a economic depression downturn. Um, it seems to be changing every week, but it feels like most of the folks I speak with are very concerned about budget, very concerned about, you know, capital investment, very concerned about, you know, margins. And, and I mean, really basically they're worried about money. And yeah. so to be a salesperson who's going to folks and asking for money and asking for a partnership um, is difficult. And I think, you know, really having to kind of change how we speak about what we do and, and really understand also what are the changing partners of our clients and understand that, you know, previously it wouldn't have been hard to go to your CFO and ask for, you know, $100,000 check. And now, Two thousand yeah. dollar checks are being scrutinized, and oh, understanding yeah. that and being My sympathetic to that. Are constantly being scrutinized. <laughs> no, certainly. So I think that's been the number one thing. Um, and I think you know, again, I feel really lucky to be in a place like Riskified, where you know, a lot of our deals pay for themselves via you know cost savings, via increased revenue, to where we can build a, a really strong business case. And I think a lot of CFOs respect that, but I think a lot of the buyers who I speak with are nervous to go ask for money from somebody given how I think tight things feel today. Um, and then I think in fraud, um, you know, there was a huge fraud ring in Q4 that I think affected a lot of people, our clients, not our clients, um, all over, all over the world. And I think 
something that was really interesting that we saw is, and I think Briscoe did a really good job of of catching that early, really, you know, stopping a lot of, I think just stopping things very quickly and limiting a lot of those losses. I've been speaking to some prospective clients who were not with Riskified, who got hit really hard. And one of the big implications of that, in addition to losses, is their card monitoring programs with Visa and MasterCard. You have to have your chargeback rates below a certain amount or else you can face really material penalties. And a lot of them got really close to or past that. So now you're not just paying for chargebacks, you're paying X dollars per chargeback and additional fees. Yeah. X thousand dollars per month. Yeah, the, sorry, fees, ahead, the, the, the the monitoring programs are not very fun to be in. So, um, so yeah, don't get in I those, think, everybody. <laughs> so that's, I think that is a really big worry for folks. It's not just limiting losses. It's how can we set up controls against those catastrophic events um, and you know make sure that they don't have a spike. And I think that feels very top of mind what I've been hearing in the industry. Yeah, I think uh, you know it's always been a balance for people to to figure out where their their individual company's baseline is for for risk. Because um, obviously, like with with like. Visa has theirs at 90 basis points now for the thresholds on that. And then I think everybody else is still sitting at, at one, um, one full point. But uh, it's it's a balancing act because you want to be maximize your approvals while still minimizing your chargebacks. So in, in reality, to maximize your approvals, you want to be as close to that line as humanly possible. But it doesn't give you any wiggle room should something go awry. Like for us, you know, a good example of that is like we have these mids in these territories that all of a sudden we can't do business in. And there's still chargebacks coming in from old sales on that, but there's no new sales to offset. So you see that start to skyrocket there. So you need to have a pretty healthy wiggle room on there, but still be balancing the amount of uh, of of risk that you're taking on at the same time, but still allowing the right amount of orders through and rejecting the right amount. It's a balancing act and you need to really work hard to find your own business's baseline on where that should be. Yeah, no, certainly. And I think, again, that's, I, I said this before, standing on the shores of giants, but I, I feel very lucky to work for an organization that has amazing product folk, meaning data scientists. And you know, we've created really great solutions to thread that needle of how can we push approvals and maximize revenue you know, to, to positively affect business outcomes while being really thoughtful about those fraud rings and those high-risk events so that we don't cross that line. And it is a dance that requires a lot of precision and constant monitoring, but you know, I think we have a lot of really great people who are you know, able to do that for our clients. Yeah, I'm happy to see you guys are pushing more into a more robust chargeback program too. I think there's a lot of value there. Um, you guys have the data already, you know, so it'd be nice to, like to see uh, the future in that that chargeback program. So I could just offload everything to you guys. That'd be really nice. Oh, <laughs> I can't wait. Music to my ears. Yeah, I bet. And, and, and dollar mm -hmm. signs to your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's pretty much going to do it for us today on this particular episode. How do you feel? Oh, you know, I feel great. I mean, it's actually the first podcast I've been on, believe it or not. I'm such a really? talker, but um, yeah, yeah, I know, right? You would have thought I'd been on men's fitness, well, but nope. Salesman, salesman. Yeah, that ripped body of yours, bro. I mean, <laughs> yeah, how could you not be on the cover of that podcast? Yeah, see, I knew it. I knew we were selling the right stuff to the right people. I knew it. Then some plugs. No, but um, no, it was great. I mean, it was a really good conversation. It's just it's always it's always fun chatting with you. Um, you know your your energy and your excitement. It's seven twenty over here in the East Coast, and um, I feel like I just yeah. had a cup cup of coffee with an espresso dropped right in. So that that's a very New York thing. You probably have a nine o'clock <laughs> dinner and all of that. You know, 
Exactly. Well, no, it was great. But really, thanks for having me on, Jordan. It was such a pleasure. And I mean, I just think it's awesome what you're doing for the industry, just bringing on people and giving them a voice. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. You know, this is this is a very um, self-serving thing for me. I enjoy just having these conversations and recording them. I'm learning a lot, uh, not only learning a lot about how to do a podcast and how to record, but I'm learning a lot about like how how people are like people are interesting and, and how everybody's day is different. And I like to learn a little bit about what people are doing with their day, what people are doing with their lives. So I'm going to keep pumping out these episodes and I would like to thank you for being a part of it. And uh, yeah, well, thank you for your time tonight. I'm going to let you go, go get some dinner. Uh, you have a, a, a good evening and thanks again. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed the content. Don't forget to visit my friends at Spec, who just happened to be this quarter's sponsors. Their patented TrustCloud platform can help you orchestrate the future of your fraud and payments journey for a quick and easy no-code implementation. It's really quite impressive. See it for yourself at www.specprotected.com today and ask for a demo on your very own site. Thanks again for listening.